Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. May 9th, 2022, episode 210, May Day. Hello everyone, Kevin England here. Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner, our little corner of the corner where we obsess about things beekeeping. It's a beautiful day in May, finally. And to be clear, the title is not a call for distress. It's simply a nod to the truth. Today is a day in May. The show is a day behind schedule as today is Monday, and I'm finishing up this recording in the wee hours of the morning while trying to get my head prepped around another work week. But first, wanted to get the show out of the door, albeit a day late, and I'm cleaning up the production in hopes that somewhere during maybe lunch hour, we'll be shipping this thing out no later than dinner. We'll see how that goes. Uh, round table number one. Let's go through the inventory of what we have. No Mo May. Have you heard of this? It's an interesting story on how people respond to things that way. Round table number two, non-toxic weed killer. It's that time of year. Got a recipe for you. Round table number three, package success or failure as it might be. A little bit of an examination as it is that time of year where people run into problems. Round table number four, bees in the box. Round table number five, Utah not so jazzed. Round table number six, the BY solution. A modern, modern version of beekeeping. Round table number seven, a proclivity for nasty bees. What the heck is going on? And the last round table before we get to topics is bees, wax, foundation, molt, made from silicone. You could buy them on Amazon. I'll talk about that and how they are tempting. Topic number one, joinery. A discussion about how did we get to box joints or specifically are they the best choice for us? And especially if you're making your homemade boxes and round table number two. Oh, nope. That's not round table. It's a topic number two. Notions of treatment free. That's a pretty ambitious list. So I think right there we'll end it. Uh, let's head into round table number one. Round table number one, we'll call this one Mayday. It is a concept being promoted this year in the United States to not mow your lawn in May. Have you heard of this? This has had its genesis from the United Kingdom where they have said that the increase in pollinator population has uh, some numbers bantied about increased fivefold because people in the United Kingdom were encouraged not to mow their grass in May and leave the forage for the bees. It's supposed to counter how the bees are dying off in record numbers. I came across this post in a Facebook post and it had that stupid moniker experts warn don't do something in order to help you be incentivized to click on it. But the premise of this is something that we followed in our yard quite frequently every year. 
since I think we've moved into this house. We just don't mow the grass in the spring. It promotes a couple things. One, it obviously leaves plants for the pollinators, including all the flowers that grow. There's the small little white flowers. I don't even know what they're called in our yard. And dandelions. We're okay with them. And given that we live in the woods and our grass doesn't get too much sun, we like to let the grass grow strong and healthy through May. And somewhere when it gets to mid-calf high, we cut it down. That's always an adventure that first day Sharon goes out with the lawn tractor and buzzes through the yard because any of the sticks and whatever that she missed picking up get ground up and it sounds awful. Like somebody's running one of those tree grinding machines as she goes around. I can only imagine in suburbia where people have manicured lawns that leaving the yard unmowed for the month of May would probably draw the ire of your neighbors. Uh, some folks have taken into putting signs out with no mow May. But, you know, as I look at the forum responses to this one article that was posted in Facebook, the trolls come out when that happens. Why don't you want to mow your grass? Are you trying to save gasoline? Is this a government ploy? Blah, 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 blah. I think it's a good idea. I don't have an objection to it. If worse comes to worse where you live in that neighborhood where you can't not mow your grass, then don't mow the backyard. Leave the front nice and manicured and you live with whatever's going on back there. That's an idea. So, there is the concept that if you pay somebody to mow your grass, you'll save a lot of money. But you're putting those people out to work. You see where this goes? <laughs> uh, no mow may. It's a thing. Thank you, UK, for discovering it. I almost wish that they could promote this a little better. The better idea would be to plant wildflowers in specific parts of your yard and then not mow that area and always have pollinator gardens, but that's okay. Let's move along. Roundtable number two, call this one Squirt Squirt. It's a non-toxic weed killer. It's that time of year as we are all out there in the warm weather. It finally broke here in New Jersey, although this week it's supposed to be cold and wet for a couple of days, lows in the 30s again. I just don't know what the deal is with this spring, but uh, I found Sharon on the first warm day on her hands and knees out in the backyard picking large dandelions out of our brick patio. Our brick patio is really old and kind of probably needs to be ripped up and redone. And the plants go through it every year and every year Sharon goes through and picks them out. I think she starts with the big ones and then she starts the spray routine and she uses a non-toxic weed killer. So here's the re recipe for that. Uh, a gallon of vinegar. White vinegar, I think, is usually the best one. Apple cider vinegar, it don't matter, but you know, typically I think what people buy is white vinegar. Two cups of Epsom salt and a quarter cup of Dawn dish soap. Use the blue original one. Um, don't yell at me. I know people don't like to spray salt on their yard. They don't like to put Dawn dishwashing detergent into the soil. I'm just telling you what people typically use. I do know that if you probably sprayed straight vinegar 
it usually works with a little bit of water uh, but I think it's the salt in combination with the dish detergent that one desiccates a plant and two strips it of its oil and then it can't stand up to the weather and obviously the vinegar is the vinegar the good news for this is in trials from the previous years you spray the stuff on and it kills everything and you're not using methyl ethyl death roundup or something else the bad news is if you spray roundup it stays gone for a longer period of time but this is pretty effective we've used it and you know maybe midsummer you need a touch up or something where roundup would probably last the whole season don't particularly like roundup so go with the homemade formula you mix until the salt is dissolved and then you put it in a sprayer you could use one of those big pump sprayers that you buy at a box store or you could use the hand sprayer but your hands gonna wear out quite a bit you spray the weeds in the morning after the dew has evaporated and it doesn't seem to impact the bees we've sprayed stuff and the bees have been flying around the patio and having no problem at all with it so just one more gardening tip Roundtable number three, going to call this one package success. You know, it's this time of year where people have installed packages in the last two weeks and they start to call in to say their queens are superseding. Had a discussion recently with Bob Kloss about this while we were doing some queen rearing and the whole concept of why do the queens... Why do they get replaced? And the interesting part is they actually a lot of times start to lay eggs. Well, let's go back through that. And there was a comment I saw from Michael Palmer that uh, talked about this. If you think about the way a package is built, and this is a time of year where a lot of people have installed packages and are encountering this, they don't understand the dynamic of it. The vendor goes out into the field to a bunch of full-size production colonies, goes out and finds a queen, if they can find it, puts it aside, and then harvests the bees, whatever they are, into a box. Literally dump them through a chute into a box. So what are you getting? That all depends on how the colony overwintered. And if the colony got a good start. To the spring, it depends on the weather there and wherever the package is being made. Sometimes you're going to get a mix of bees that had just started into the season and they're going full bore. And other times you're going to get colonies that were languishing. We all have experience with different hives and how they come out of spring. They're all like children. They're all a little bit different. And you have no idea which colony got picked and put into the box that you have in front of you. The second factor is they've gone into a mating yard and picked out all these mated queens. Proper vendors go through and put mated queens into a box and have them laying. So they prove that they can lay eggs and their patterns are good and such. Every once in a while you put one of those in with a package and there was a new queen somewhere in the making in the middle of the package bees and you're not sure which one is going to win. You take the queen in the cage 
and put her in the colony. And the queen that was in the package beast that the shaker didn't know was in there, they're going to find each other. That queen's been walking around. The other one's been sequestered into the cage. I think you could start to formulate that there are a number of problems that can occur, but the most important one that's emerged recently as school of thought is that the colony is not operational. If you have worker bees that are attending to brood in the package down south, then all of a sudden they're put into a box and they're shipped up north, where we are, say New Jersey. On the ride, they're not feeding bees, they're not doing any of that work. If they were at the cusp of aging out, and there were no young nurse bees in that colony for some reason, then you have a bunch of old bees that would typically be on the cusp or at forager age. Put them in a new colony with foundation, wait for wax to get drawn, and then the queen starts to lay, all those nurse bees have aged out. They have to reinvigorate themselves in order to feed, which they can do, but that's disharmony. The whole point of this is disharmony. So what a lot of folks say to do, if you could afford it, but how does a new beekeeper do this? Take a frame of open brood with the nurse bees and put them in the center of the colony. This achieves a couple things. One, it anchors the colony because it is pretty typical that if you shook a package into a box with a frame of brood, they would not abandon it. And then the other thing is they have something from brood pheromone and worker pheromone because you have workers that are of age to feed brood in there that could carry on the lineage and then the queen can lay right away because she has a place to lay with the drawn out comb and there's a lot of different advantages of this but the takeaway here is get your package installed right away the longer the bees age out the longer the queen is not laying the more chance you have for problems and if the queen does eventually get comb and starts to lay, she hasn't been laying for quite a while, and her brood pheromone and her queen pheromone gets distributed to the colony, but they may not accept it. Then what do they do? They pick that larva that aged after three days of being an egg, and they make a queen out of it. So typically you see this within a week or two, because they have to draw comb, queen has to lay, three days for an egg, comes out as a larvae, they build queen cups, all of that stuff. So now is the time when they do early April installs, uh, first week in May, last week of April, first week in May, that the beekeepers who start their season start to call and say, I think I have a queen cell in my colony. Now, for recovery, what do you do? I think of it this way. I'm not sure that the best course of action is to let it ride. A couple seasons ago, I picked a package, picked a pack of pack of poppers, picked a package and put it in a box, and it failed. I'm going to say I'm an idiot, 
I'm the master beekeeper and I did everything I was supposed to do, but I made the wrong choice and I realize it now. If I saw a queen that was being superseded and they made queen cells, I didn't want to run over and buy a queen somewhere and I didn't have any readily banked queens. So I decided I'm going to let it ride. I'm going to let that queen roll. Bad decision. I think you should go buy a mated queen and put it in the box. Here's the math. By the time that queen emerges, by the time she goes out and gets mated, if there's no problems, it'll probably be three weeks, a month. That's a month during the forage season that sets that entire colony back as they limp along. And by my way of thinking, that's going to put you somewhere about the end of May. End of May, when the season dries up, a good season in mid-July, means they don't have a lot of bees and resources and whatever they need in order to get done for two full boxes, let alone draw you some honey supers. But if you put a laying queen right in there and she picked up where they laid off, then you probably lost a week or two. Now, one of the questions is, what about the queens? It was always a commonly held belief that the queens were substandard that you were getting in these packages. If you look at the research that David Tarpey tells you about, typically what he's found is that there's nothing wrong with the package queens. When they examined them, they were well-mated. And when they looked at the patterns that they laid, they were fine. It's more about the, the circumstance. Now, there was one thing that was discussed in this arena, which was the transport. Is it possible that transporting the bees from point A to point B subjects them to something that, say, chills the queen, kills the sperm? Not really. Uh, when they did that research, yeah, they found some problems, but as far as I know, that's really not what's going on. Most of the people who transport packages... If they have any experience with it, know how to protect the bees. There are off chances that somebody did something wrong. Maybe the tarp blew off while they were driving back from North Carolina and, you know, the bees got cold. And those bees on the outer periphery or the back of the trailer or whatever it is suffered a fate. Now, there's one thing to be said, and I think I've read different percentages on this, so don't quote me on this. I'm just kind of putting together the full headspace about this. Package producers know that a certain percentage of the packages supersede. I think it, you know, I've seen numbers of 3% to 10% to maybe even higher on some cases. I won't name names, but if you've been around long enough, you probably know who I'm talking about. Has told me, package provider here that they get extra queens for this reason. And if you have a problem with a package superseding, my recommendation would be go back to the person you bought it from and ask them if they have any queens. Reputable package suppliers send queen replacements with their package so that if somebody has a problem with one of the queens that were in the package. Let's go back to the scenario I talked about. They harvested a colony out of a box, and it had a virgin queen running around. You put the package into your box, and the 
Virgin Queen ran around and somehow they rejected the queen you were trying to put in and the virgin had to go get mated and things didn't go well, whatever the case may be. They know that happens. And so they may supply queens to replace the bad ones so that they don't have a bad name and also as a service to the customers. So if you have a problem with a package and it's not running its course properly, Go back to your supplier and see if they can give you a queen. You're better off to put that in the box right away. And that's actually the takeaway of this one. It's an interesting dynamic to think through. And I remember early days when everybody always talked about queen quality, queen quality, queen quality. But if you think about biology-driven beekeeping, there's a lot of biology going on in there. And that whole respite they have from transport plays a pretty big factor by my way of thinking and by others, not me. I picked this up from others. So who am I? Yeah. Roundtable number four, call this one bees in the box. I saw this ingenious picture on a, I made something for beekeeping website. And I, I don't know if it's the greatest idea, but the ingenuity of it made me think that's pretty cool. Go to a box store and buy a tote. The typical totes with the two flaps that interlock like fingers when you join them. What the person did was drill a hole, in fact four holes, two on one end, two on the other, and they ran a rod on the short side, measured, of course, so that you could hang a frame from it. It's a makeshift swarm capture box. And the easy thing about it is they bought a threaded rod. And the threaded rod is, I guess, two foot. And they stuck it through the hole and you screw a nut on the inside. And you screw them out to the point where they meet up with the sides. And if you want, you could screw one to the outside through to hold it in place. And the rod serves as a frame hanger. The picture that I saw had the two rods in there with frames nested in there. And it looks perfect. I would think you could probably get six, seven, eight frames, if not more, depending on the type of box that you buy. Now, obviously you would want to look through the stack that they have at the box store and, you know, see if you could right size the container. And, you know, I don't know the, the ones, if you think about the way these things are designed, you swing the lids closed. And a lot of them have locking mechanisms on the ends in the center that you could put something in to secure them so they won't open in transport. You could go as far as open your bee catalog and buy one of those entrance doodads and cut a hole in it. It's certainly easy enough to drill and make a false entrance. But I don't know that I would leave the bees in this thing for any appreciable time because from a bee stay standpoint, they're going to build errant comb all over the place. But if you're looking for a simple tote that you can stick on a shelf somewhere and every swarm season pull out and run out to a job with it, I think you could stack a couple of these, two or three, and they'd be a pretty good go. It sure beats having to scrub out or, or climb through your equipment stack and pull together something and go find a strap and 
figure out how you're going to close your box. And I don't know. It just it struck me as a pretty cool, simple, straightforward thing to have in your arsenal. That's all. Bees in a box. Roundtable number five. Not so jazzed. Seven guys came in. Only one guy came out. That was the story Rudy Gobert told when he was trying to explain why his face was swollen. Uh, just joking around, actually, his assailant, a bee, stung him on the face. Rudy wanted to have bees on his property and set up a hive and was working with the beekeeper. I guess he's not the beekeeper, but a beekeeper's apprentice. And got stung on the face while they were trying to do a queen replacement. Uh, Gobert, who lives in Utah, which is known as apparently the Beehive State, was talking about this incident with the press, and it became a good place to do a little promotion for beekeeping and pollinators, uh, saying that it's good for the environment, it's good for the landscape, flowers, the fruit, and he loves honey, so he always wanted to have a hive. I think it's kind of cool when you find these people in the periphery who are supporting beekeeping and yeah we've all been there uh responsible beekeeper wears a veil <laughs> is our little joke about that but uh in this case i'm sure the swelling went down sounds like he did okay with it and it's just a little little story to talk about beekeeping in the news roundtable number six be wise it is touted as earth's first robotic beehive. When I first encountered this solution, I went and looked at it and they had to watch the sappy video, which just drives me nuts. The first starts with this melancholy music talking about the plight of the bees, and then it amps up into some great symphonic solution showing their thing and how it solves the world's problems. Uh, put all that behind you. What is this thing? It's a box that has automated controls, almost robotic-like arms, fingers, and such, that do the beekeeping for you. If you could sit down for a year and contemplate all of the wonderful things that you do as a beekeeper, meaning the maintenance activities, and find ways to automate that, it's an interesting idea, and these folks, it appears, have done just that. If you go to BeWise, B-E-E-W-I-S-E dot A-G, AG, you can see this solution and find out how it works, what the impact of it is, and so on. To describe it, it almost looks like a trailer, but it seems that they offer all kinds of packages. And it physically is closest to a Slovenian hive, if I want to do it. It looks like it uses regular Langstroth equipment inside. It's a little bit, um, I, I don't know, it's hard to say what this thing is because they don't show you as much as you want to see when you're looking through it. But to describe it, it almost looks like a shipping container that they drop off in a field. And inside it has racks of frames. And it indicates that it has uh, multiple. And I guess you can configure this. The typical one is 24 beehives. Now imagine if you take this thing and drop it in a field for pollination. I'm guessing that's one of the things they can do. And 
to describe the robotic part of it, yes, it has actuators that go in and pull frames and do inspections and things like that. It has cameras. It has sensors galore. The sensors detect the temperature. They detect uh, different things you want to look for. I, I want to be brief with this. You, you should go take a look at it. Um, but I think it'll even tell you if it's got honey and you can go out and harvest honey and all of that stuff. So uh, very interesting idea. Um, there's an internal centrifuge to the thing. It'll uncap the frame. And once the honey starts to flow, it puts it in the centrifuge and it spins it. And if I think about all these problems, imagine if you stood and watched a beekeeper do an inspection. Imagine if you stood and watched a beekeeper uncap and do honey. And you could say, well, step one, pull the frame. Step two, uncap the frame. Step three, put it in the centrifuge. And you could robotically program all that. That's an interesting idea. You could physically automate the entire process if you had robots that are deft enough to do it. Is there such a thing? Of course there is. Because if you think about how they build cars, they go through with the robot and mount the panels and hit all the weld spots and do all of that stuff. And if you could build a car, I'm sure you could do this. Now, I don't know, when we uncap frames... There's always that frame that has the indentation or build out or whatever. I don't know how this thing can be so specific in something that's so organic as beekeeping. But it's an interesting idea. Um, if I look at the way this site works, you get a plan. You consult with them. They find out what you need. And you pay a monthly fee and they come and put this thing in your property. When they place the hive, they monitor it from afar. So the box sits in the field and they tap into it. And if there's corrections needed, they can come out to the site. But for the most part, robotically, they can do everything from inside. To describe it, there's frames on one side of a wall, and they have a robotic arm that rides in the middle, and it goes back and forth on a track. And using motors and actuators and things, they can go up, grab the frame, slide it out, perform whatever they want to do on the frame, and slide it back in. If you think about what I've talked about in the past, like a cartridge hive, this is cartridge hive on steroids. They have just a full bank wall of frames. Now, the interesting thing that I don't understand looking at the picture is they have all the frame ends you can see, but it doesn't appear to be sealed. So I don't know if the bees are flying around inside the box. I can't imagine that could be the case. Everything has to be kept compact because if the bees were inside the actual chamber i'm guessing they would make a mess of everything there's not enough information on the site to understand how this thing works but 
It is solar powered and it autonomously cares for the hives of the bees. And it has routines built in that prevent swarming, harvests the honey, attends to the bees. And at some point, this is really clever, they could generate enough heat to bring the temperature up to the point where they don't melt the wax, don't harm the bees, but it kills the varroa mites. So if you think about one of the varroa mite strategies in the world is varroa mites can't handle high heat. Now you could bring a temperature of a colony up to a specific temperature to kill the mites. And yes, it might stress the bees, but it kills the mites and the bees move on after the temperature gets lowered. If you have a box that's fully enclosed and you could put a heater in it and you can control the temperature by sensors all the way through the box, you could do this. So they do treatments, which means they don't have to put chemicals in the colony. Uh, this thing is interesting. It, it requires more unpacking. I'm just talking about it because I came across it here. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to think of it other than, you know, I don't ever want to say things are bad or good or different or whatever in the context of not understanding them. It's just a fascinating, unusual thing. I can imagine uh, taking an agile approach to beekeeping. If you sat down and said, I'm going to build an ecosystem and you mapped out all the potential things that you'd had to address and then you could figure out a way to automate them and you spent years doing it, you'd come up with this. So it looks like a metal container. They set it out in a field and there's long strips on the side with holes, entrances for the bees. Now, when you look at it, there's a number of things that a typical beekeeper would say, yeah, well, what about this? And what about that? And so, for example, the one picture I'm currently looking at, there appears to be 10 slots for the bees to go in and out, the entrances on the side of the box container. Now, mind you, this box container is as big as a small room. And they have these long, looks like two foot, three foot long slots, and there's holes in them. And to make them more distinguishable for the bees, they're colored. There's an orange one, a purple one, a blue one. A blue one, a green one, an orange one, a purple one, a blue one, an orange one, a green one. They rotate the colors. So if I'm a bee, I know I can come over to that slot. But there's 12 holes in the slot. Which one is mine? I'll go in that one. A normal beekeeper would say, well, what about drift? I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, the bees all center in the, the outside ones sometimes. You know, when if you've ever seen that phenomena where you put a bunch of hives on a stand and they tend to drift to the, I think it's the outside ones. Maybe it's the inside, I don't remember. But there is a pattern where one colony gets more bees. Beewise.org you can also look at it at therobotreport.com. They had an article on this. This is where I recovered it. And this robotic beehive wants to save the bees. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. 
Interesting. I have to look more on this, and this one probably will end up in my alternative hives talk somewhere because of the unique nature of it. But when will you ever find a beehive that has a door on it? This is, you know, like I said, a Slovenian hive in modern, modern, modern format. And I'm curious to how well they do with this. And if I think about the investment, it was not cheap from the prices that I saw. Um, yeah, 24 hives. What would they pay to have a stack of 24 hives delivered to a property? I don't know what the case would be. That's an interesting idea. You know, the one thing I just thought of is maybe the entrance is one entrance for each hive. And the bees can come and go across the entire strip, and it's not separate ones. Maybe that's what the case is. Because the way that I saw the frames, they're stacked horizontally in a row. And I'm now that I think about it, again, I'm just trying to grasp what this thing is. The pictures are kind of you know, clandestine. They, they didn't really want to give away all their secrets, I think. Uh, there's just snapshots of different things, and you have to surmise what's going on in there. Yeah, so I'll have a link to two websites. This report from the Robot Report and the BeWise homepage at BeWise.ag. You go check it out and see what you think of it. Roundtable number seven, this one's called Nasty Girl. Oh, you nasty. I have noticed recently, and I have no idea whether this just centers around my awareness of this or if it's becoming more frequently, that the encounters with some hives that are just off-the-scale aggressive, they're more frequent. It started with me, of course, with the euthanized hive video and the fact that I've become pseudo-known for this. And people ask me upon my encounters, and therefore, people who know about that will call me and tell me about their different things. But even generally, as I wander around and talk with people, a story raises. And I didn't bring up the topic. It just manifests itself. Recently, talking with one beekeeper, discussed with me some hot hives that he had and how they were over the top. And they described those things that we keep seeing surface. Bees that are aggressive when you open them, even in good forage and no reason to be pissy. And bees that patrol the yard and you just get stung when you walk into the neighborhood. I have no idea but only a stupid speculation that I have to wonder if some of the genetics of aggression are making their ways into our providers. And somehow, some way, in a dormant sense, they are coming up. I got a phone call this week from a fellow beekeeper in our club talking about someone who has an aggressive hive. And he was working with the person, and the person was out trying to remediate it, and it they're a fairly new beekeeper, maybe a year or two old uh, beekeeper, and they left their suit open and got stung multiple times, and as such developed a reaction, and as such now have a sensitivity to the bees and are selling their entire operation. And in discussing the hive that was in problem, the beekeeper that I know, who's a seasoned dude, 
Uh, the guy knows what he's doing. He has tons of bees on his own. He helps people. He's a mentor. And he's rearing queens and doing things. He does uh, cutouts pretty extensively. This is somebody that's in bees all the time. And when they tell me they're going to help someone mitigate hive because it's hot, I, I think they know what they're talking about. So just the context, this isn't two fairly new beekeepers who don't know how to handle bees and are mucking things up, causing the bees to be pissy. He had to go help that person mitigate the hives. And they're talking about requeening them or breaking them down. And in the case of the first beekeeper that I spoke of, uh, yeah, it, it just seems to be more common. They had to euthanize a hive, pour soap through it, same way that I did when I got rid of mine. I've been hearing this over and over again, that people are dealing more frequently. I've seen it on Facebook, too, where two or three accounts in the last month of somebody saying, I have this raging hot hive, what should I do with it? In fact, you know, given the video that I put out, people are referring to my video and explaining to people what to do with it, which is ironic because that's what I created the video. If you ever happen to, by chance, in a one in a million thing, had a hive, this is what you do with it, now all of a sudden it's showing up all over the place. And so I sent a note to someone on Facebook who turned up in a forum saying, I have this hive, and it wasn't as bad as mine, but it was pretty darn testy from the videos that I saw. So what's going on? Why is there a more aggressive topic? Uh, this more aggressive uh, colony topic surfacing all of a sudden. Is it just line of sight for me? Or I, I'm curious if you have encountered anybody who's been running across this. And, you know, forgive me, I'm not going to talk about. There's people who deal with this all the time. And for us in the Northeast, it's, oh, the drama. If you're in Arizona, if you're in Florida, if you're in Texas in some respects, this is just a way of life. Those people have learned, like, say, the bees we saw in Africa, to deal with it. There's a way to manage those type of hives. The difference is the public perception. If you had one of those hives and someone got stung in New Jersey with it, it would be the end of the world, probably. If it happened in Arizona, it would be reported on the news that a dog got stung, a person got stung, there was harm done, and then move along. They're used to it. They're desensitized to it. But in our region, it's not something we're going to anticipate encountering. So I'm just curious, uh, Kevin, at bkcorner.org, if you've encountered anybody and you see this more frequent, I'm just informal survey. But I don't know what's going on. And I have to wonder if there'll come a point where the aggression is going to surface enough that it's going to show up on the radar screen to the point where somebody's going to want to monitor it. And I'm maybe next time when I talk to our state apiarist, I'll ask her if she has had any encounters or is this just hypersensitivity just to a small topic that's not really a problem. And my speculation is that is the case, but it sure seems strange that more and more in the spring seasons, I'm getting reports of this. Uh, you know, I'm connected to a lot of people. They, you know, I go in and out and talk to different beekeepers through the season. Uh, you may not be. 
as a local beekeeper, you probably stay centered in your club, but you know, I'm what I would call a regional beekeeper. I have people that I connect with all over the, the regions and such. Um, yeah, just, just me talking out loud, a little editorial. Round table number eight, wax molds. You know, this is an interesting idea um, that's always been kind of in the background. And I have to be the first one to say, no, I really don't want to get into this business, but it's been a curiosity. And especially when I put together my Lance Hive, I purchased some wax sheets from Leo Shereshkin. And they came, and they're, I think they're from France or somewhere, where they're pure wax. And that notion has always been an interest to me. Now, over the years and in my travels, I've seen different ways that people have set up to make their own wax foundation. And the obvious benefit would be that you could repurpose clean wax built from your colonies uh, to the best of their ability and make fresh, clean wax instead of buying manufacturer wax, which is said to possibly have impurities in it. By my way of thinking, no, this is just way too much work to do for a hobbyist, yet every once in a while I find something of interest in. There are beeswax foundation silicone molds now sold on the internet, and actually they're pretty inexpensive. Uh, I think it's somewhere around $25 to $40, depending on what kind of kit you buy. Now, if you read the comments, they're a horror show. <laughs> so the way this works is someone has created a two-sided silicone mold. And if you've ever used these for anything, making soap, making candles, and so on, they actually work pretty well. But you can imagine trying to employ this for a flat sheet of wax where you're trying to put the top mold in order to get the foundation imprint on the top side. They have interlocking pieces that go together, and the answer is that's where the Achilles heel of this thing is. I would imagine or think that the better way to go would be not the way I saw a lot of people try these things. I did look them up. Uh, typically what they've done for what I could see is they lay the piece flat on a table over top of something, say newspaper. They pour the wax through it, over it, kind of like you're pouring a pancake and trying to get the pancake the right thickness. And then you have to lay the other thing over and you're pushing down on the top to make contact and squeeze the wax out solidly. And then you interlock the joining fingers. And of course, as you squeeze all this stuff, the wax is squeezing through the top and the bottom. And apparently it just makes a big old mess. By my way of thinking, that's just not going to work. And I don't think you could ever be successful with that. I would wonder if you could create a wood block with seams on the side and lay it inside of it and pour the wax, use some sort of squeegee to get it to the right level, working very quickly, of course, and then lay the top on and press it down and do it that way. Then once everything firms up, you could pull the top off, cut around the edges, pull it out, and disrobe your <laughs> wax from the silicone. I... 
why did I spend so much time thinking about this? Because I'm actually thinking about it. It's, you know, there's so many curiosities that I have tried in life. Why not try this one? Maybe somewhere down the road. And given it's that time of year, I'll see if I can save off some wax. Clean, nice, pretty wax. And the funny thing is, I just went through all the frames. I physically finished this afternoon. I went through everything that I had this year that I pulled out of service. And if you know me, one of the things I preach is take your old comb, your credit comb, your terrible comb, move it to the outside, try to get it to the bottom box. And in winter, if you have a dead out or when you're cleaning your hives up, uh, pull that comb, bring it out and get rid of it. Now, sometimes when you put new foundation in, like I've been doing over the last couple of years, the bees build it out, but they don't build it to your liking. And there's probably half dozen or more frames that I had that had built out comb that were year, maybe two years old. Some of them didn't even have brood in them. And I cut those out. Unfortunately, I put those in the bag with all the old stuff and I'm just going to melt it and make fire starters or something out of it. But in the future, I'm wondering if that would be the type of wax to save. I don't know if I, you know, you could use capping wax too. I'd rather save that for cosmetics and other things, but yeah, so beeswax foundation silicone mold. If you search for that on Amazon, one of my favorite places to shop, uh, you could find examples of that for sale and maybe someday I'll give this a try. I don't think I would ever try it without the, the, what would you call it? Template or frame around it. I would just not do an initial pour, but I think you could probably figure it out some way. The other way to do this, and, you know, I see these ads all the time in my Facebook feed, is people sell stuff to make your own molds. And I could imagine the hardest part for us would be how do you make a silicone mold of a foundation thing? Well, that's pretty easy. Plastic foundation. You buy some right cell or something, and you could put that right in the f- mold and make your own. Um, yeah, just anyway, just talking out loud. I could see that too, but uh, why not buy it? If it's available and somebody's already solved that problem, that's easier than trying to do the whole thing from scratch. I, I don't know. That seems kind of silly. Yeah, check the notes. I'll have a link to an example on Amazon. Time to turn to the topics of this episode. First one I call disjointed. I was wheeling my cart out to the apiary this week and had a stack of boxes on a pile. One of my 10-frame poly super slid off the stack and hit the ground, and I didn't think much of it, finished rolling the cart into the apiary. But when I went back... For the box, moments later, I was dismayed and a bit surprised to see that the box broke at one of the corners. My poly boxes employ a mortise and tenon design, and the tenon had broken off the base. Presumably, it had the most stress there, and well, I had to take it back to the garage and fix it. Put a pin in that and turn to the topic about to be discussed, the choice of joinery for hive boxes. We all have been accustomed to our woodenware employing box joints. Did you ever stop to think about the evolution of that as a design choice? Yeah, probably not. In some respects, we actually probably don't care for it as it makes life complicated in many respects for fabrication. 
If you have that notion, then one question you can ask is, is it really necessary to have such a complicated joinery for B-boxes? To answer that question, you have to go one of two ways. You simply assume that somebody already did the math and that this is a built-in solution that does not warrant question. Or you think, I wonder if I can get away with the complications and take on a little risk by using a different approach. Uh, yeah, this is a bit of a philosophical question. It's something that is both tradition and standard doesn't really require examination. But there are times when a handy person might be staring at some stock wood and they want to use it up and think, I know B-boxes employ box joints, but do I really have to do that? I kind of have the answer and the results of joinery strength, given the resource I'm about to share. It's kind of interesting. A video popped up recently on YouTube for the woodworking savvy that explored the strength of wood joints and it so happens that box joints were in the comparison. Now, it was nothing to do with beekeeping, but the results were interesting to us nonetheless. The video posted on Bourbon Moth Woodworking Channel entitled What's the Best Wood Joint did a Mythbusters type of presentation to compare apples to apples what joinery techniques hold up the best and rank them from worst to best. One of the factors of the test that you cannot see how the test is conducted because yeah, I'm doing an audio program is how they actually set the test up to do it. So let me see if I can describe that for you. They took several different joints. I think there were seven in total and fabricated just one long side and one short side. It almost looked like a beehive box. Then they set that in some kind of jig and they were able to apply pressure on the joint by loading it with weights. They made a fulcrum and set a tabletop on it and then they piled weights on it. And they were physically in a gym when they did this and they were taking 10 pound weight slags that you would, you know, put on a barbell and setting it on there until the joint broke. Now, if you think about the test, I guess it's somewhat one dimensional in the context that it only is testing the joint by pushing pressure on the corner. It's not doing rotational twists and other type of things that you would have stressing a joint but it gives you a reasonable sense of how strong the joint is. Now, my experience is boxes, bee boxes, take the biggest hit if they're dropped off the stack and they hit the surface corner first. If they drop flat, they tend to be fine. They don't usually burst apart because of how much strength is in the joinery that we use. But I have seen bee boxes fall off the top, hit a corner, and just splay open. Kevin Mom, it's kind of like dropping your cell phone with a case on it. Most times you see it hit the ground, and when you bend over to pick it up, you think, I'm not that worried that it broke. Sure, there's a chance, you know. And other times, <laughs> when you drop your phone on a concrete floor or surface, just the way it hit, you say a little prayer, you look up to the sky, and then you turn the phone over and see whether or not the screen is broken. End of Kevin moment. In a Monday morning quarterback kind of way, the typical disclaimers in place. By my way of thinking, this is just one way to test the strengths of the joints, and on the whole, it may not represent the big picture 
as it applies, of course, to beekeeping boxes and all the things that we do. As to the joints tested, let's do a quick roll call and see if we can then talk about the results. The first one is a butt joint. One just butted up against the other. A dovetail joint. It's like a box joint, but the cuts have angles and they kind of fasten together where they won't slip and slide. Pocket holes. They did a pocket hole on the inside and they did a pocket hole on the outside. Found that the outside joint was stronger. Dowel pins. Drill holes. Stick a dowel in it. Glue everything together. A simple miter joint. This is where you take two boxes and like a butt joint, but you cut them on an angle and you join them up that way. Then they had the enhanced miter joint. You put the miter joint together and you cut a slit in it horizontally and you stick something like a biscuit or a shim in there and then trim it off. So you have the glue joinery where they join together face to face and then you have that horizontal slit with it glued that way also. Um, I think they call it a spline if I'm not mistaken. And there are a few other odd ones that I'm not going to bother talking about. They didn't do very well, so they're not worth mentioning. Then, of course, there's the box joint. So one we're all familiar with. It's the principle of most hive boxes. It's the alternating fingers interlocking in the corners. So you know what was tested. You know how it was tested. Let's talk about what happened and some of the salient takeaways as it relates to what we're concerned about. So there's a few things we can get out of the way. First things first, the weakest joint, no surprise, it's the butt joint. If you join two boards together by just gluing them, placing the surfaces in contact with each other, it makes a reasonably strong joint, but it has the lowest bonding power. One question raised in the video given the results, would this suffice? And are these other joints simply window dressing? In the context of them, they weren't talking about beekeeping. Imagine if you're going to fabricate a drawer for a kitchen. Do you really need these fancy box joints on a kitchen cabinet drawer to hold your utensils? You know, the quick answer is probably not. But people like to demonstrate quality and certainly, as shown by these tests, the other type of joints are stronger and so for that reason, and in order to imply quality, people employ different kinds of joints. And it also looks nicer. But the fact of the matter is, for most things, a butt joint will work. Now, the question lies with, you have an old box sitting on the floor. The corners are rotted, but the handhold is cut in, and the face and all of that are great. What if you could cut the center out of the side short side and join it up with another box side and make something and butt join it. That, that's a good use of equipment. And in fact, I have probably half dozen nukes that I have made that way. Yeah, butt joint, not so optimal. So stick a pin in that. We'll come back to it. The dowel pins, the joints that employed biscuits, I didn't mention that, and the pocket hole versions all did well but didn't do great. They weren't the best. And that's a simplification, but the fact is they're not worth it. Uh, there's a better choice that I'm about to tell you. Now, what's left? The miter joint. 
the simple miter joint where the ends joined together are cut out of 45 did extremely well. And they really don't have an explanation other than when you cut it, it creates a little more surface. And it's a bit of a surprise because to me, it's kind of like a glorified box joint. But for whatever reason, it scored very high in the ability to hold the pressures that they applied for this. So the dovetail joint surprisingly didn't hold up well. I suspect that, you know, the design that they employed didn't look good to me. It had wide tenons and skinny tenons. And I think if they were both even like a, like a box joint, like we're familiar with, each one of the fingers the same thickness, it would have worked better. And I guess if there's any flaw of their test, it was that the box joint or the dovetail joint that they did didn't really meet the mark as a good test subject. But now we come back to what was the winners. The miter joint we said was really good, but it wasn't the best. The box joint was amazing, but surprisingly it wasn't the best. The box joint that we employed has an end-grained, end-grained, face-to-face, multi-part glue and nail. It's going to work really well because there's so much surface contact and you're not gluing the end of the board, which tends not to have a good, what, a good made-up, um, you know, end-grains don't hold wood and all or glue that well. But the fact of the matter is, our box joint is the superior joint. No surprise there, right? How did we land on that for eons? It's because it really does work. The best joint, however, was the miter joint with the biscuit cut horizontal. That's the one that landed the best. Now, I don't know why that would be, but if you think about it, it's joined both at the face and it's joined horizontally, which is two planes. Maybe that's the difference. And they didn't cut a bunch of slots in it. They only had a handful of them. And I don't know how actually you do that. Uh, if you cut a corner, glue it together, screw it together, whatever you're going to do. And then maybe you take a saw and you cut through it manually. Stick a piece of wood in there, glue it, and then just trim it off. Why do I go back to this? Remember a moment ago I said you could take your old boxes which have bent up rotted corners and cut the center meat out of the face and make new high boxes out of it. If you're going to do that, cut them on a miter and try this joint. Your boxes will end up really, really strong and you don't have to go through making box joints out of them. So if you're going to repurpose your equipment, there's your lesson. Here's your sign. Uh, end grain to end grain glue makes it superior for our box joints, but adding a shim, especially to that miter joint thing, makes it amazing. Coming back to my polystyrene hive. I had Uhu Pour, which is the glue I use to glue them together. It's the stuff I discovered is great for gluing polystyrene. I glued it up, I clamped it, I left it be, and as soon as I let it go, it popped right off. Not a good way to go. How did I fix the box? 
I screwed it. <laughs> I glued it first, clamped it, and then I took several long three-inch wood screws and I drilled right through the side. I think the super long screws with the wide spline that I chose will be more than enough to hold that box. I'm kind of surprised that it broke, but like any material, if you hit it just right, sometimes they will shatter and that's what happened. Up until now, that's the first time I've ever had a failure in any of the poly boxes. And it makes me wonder how long they'll last now, because that's the first time I've ever seen any problems with them. If you want to look at the study the guy did on YouTube, what's the best wood joint? Insanely strong joinery exclamation point. You can find a link in our show notes. Topic number two is a bit of an editorial. It's a little bit toward treatment free. That concept toward treatment free was something that I associate with Megan Milbrath in a talk that she gave about how someone could manage their apiary in a hybrid approach where they treat hives that require it, but breed from the hives that do not require it. And the gist of that whole thing is that if you monitor your colonies, the ones that don't need treating, don't treat them, but breed from them. And that's a, you know, common sense way to go about it. Now, I'm not going to get into the whether that's a good idea concept or not. Uh, I, I actually think it's kind of ingenious and has its own merit, but the time has come to say something out loud and I'm going to share a sentiment that's knocking around in my brain. I'm starting to think about our operation and the premise of treatment-free beekeeping. And the emphasis in that statement is our operation. I'll put a pin in that. I'll never concede that letting hives die and the laborious concept of cleaning up the dead hives is an acceptable way to go. But, unfortunately, that's just something that happens. And given hive loss, the effort, and while the whole context of things, I'm chewing on the possibility of switching. And it's just a chew right now. It's not a swallow. I'm not there yet, but lately I've been doing some math. And by my way of thinking... If you're anywhere in the guise of a 50-50 split, then maybe the chances that you should just cut bait and go treatment-free. To understand that, let me share some of the points I've been considering and some of the factors also about our operation that make this a thought. First things being said, uh, my hive loss this year was somewhere around 40 to 50%. That's not including the two hives that I lost for user error operational, and that bumps us almost to 50%. Admittedly, some of the problems in the background probably were with the late start of queen rearing I did last year and the multiple supersedures that two of the hives had. And I'm not talking about dozens of hives here. I'm talking about a dozen or so. I think we had 13 hives go into winter. Seven came out. That being said, it still was a chore to clean up the hives. But you know what? As much as I lament about that, it's almost a bit therapeutic. And that makes me think, you know, it actually forced me to look at all of the inventory of everything that didn't make it through, keep the good comb, 
clear out the bad comb. And yes, I found old comb in some of that. I don't know how it happens. It just, lo and behold, as you swap hives, take hives, do whatever. Um, I think when I took my old hives out of rotation last year and the year before, I had so much uh, need for drawn comb that I took some of that and threw it in swarm traps. And then when you catch swarms as much as we did last year, it ends up that the old comb gets cycled in instead of refreshed. Well, last year I spent a lot of time putting new foundation in frames and deploying it out. And now as I'm culling the hives that didn't survive, I found enough of the fresh comb put in from 21 and 20 that I have a cache of comb that's all brand new or a couple years old, no more than two. And I have all the old stuff, which I just spent the weekend cleaning out or the two weeks, two weekends cleaning out. So I'm back at it again, cutting out comb from old comb frames and replacing it with fresh foundation. My lot in life is to have fresh comb throughout the entire operation, period. Even some of the new comb this year, I didn't make the same mistake, I put into my swarm boxes. I've captured three swarms this year, and all three of them are going to start out on comb that is mostly new. There's a couple old stinkers in there, but, you know, I think that makes a good way to go. Eventually, I'll get rid of, and I think I have, probably 98% of all the bad comb including some of the stuff that had plastic foundation. I've just called all that. That's not a good reason to go treatment free. So let me explain another thing. And this has been going on in the background and now it's time to come clean with it. I've had a partnership with Bob Kloss. I mention him all the time and we have been beekeeping buddies for probably a decade at this point. And we have a lot of the same goals and aspirations. So one of the things that he and I have talked about for our region is to try to wean people on locally reared queens to that end. And if you follow the program, you know that we've been rearing queens for the last three, four years trying to learn the craft. And I think this year we got it pretty much down. There's a couple things here and there from the 2022 session, which we just finished that we could clean up for next year. But on the whole, not too bad. We put 40 something queens that we grafted into a cell builder and came out with over two dozen. And we put the NICO in service this year and we'll probably get another dozen queens out of that too. The key to it, though, is Bob's operation. For the past six, eight years, Bob has been focused, micro-focused on survivor stock. He's only breeding from survivor stock making splits. He's been trying to source from bee trees and things that came from nature, from feral stock cutouts. He supplemented that with buying high-quality queens, Saskatraz, Sukobi, and other uh, stock. And he's been promulgating that through the three yards that he maintains, both his home yard and the two that he maintains for Northwest. Our goal at some point is to understand how to do queen rearing and teach others in our region 
and also to raise enough queens at the point where we have so many that we could just give them away locally raised highly adapted stock over the past couple of years i've been trying to use that in my apiary now the question lays with if bob is doing a hybrid approach he's gotten to the point where some of his colonies are treatment freeze not seeing mite loads to the point where he has to insert treatments now if they're club hives and and other people's hives he's advocating and so would i treating them the proper way this is a time for a kevin moment when you hear me talk about the local hive report you'll hear about how many colonies we have in the yard i do not feel that this conversation is germane to someone who is a hobbyist beekeeper that has one two five hives and so on if you're going to employ this strategy of trying to raise locally sustainable stock you have to be able to take your lumps. You have to be able to have a good number of hives. Now, as I've watched Bob's operation, some years he does really well, and other years he takes it on the chin. That's part of the growing pain. I've known other beekeepers doing this same thing, and I have to say my observation from watching the, the gene pool, so to speak, is that every once in a while people have a stinker year and they wipe out 80% of their stuff and almost have to start over again. In the case of Bob, he has three yards. So if he loses one yard, takes a pretty big hit, he can go back out to the other yards and harvest the information back in. And this is not too dissimilar from what the Russian queen breeders are doing. They're making sure that the Queens are distributed out and maintained with high integrity that if somebody takes a beating, they can bring that stock back in and continue to propagate it. Now, there's a funny thing on the side is if the stock didn't make it in one yard, why just keep bringing it back? But look, I'm, you could go crazy about all this stuff. But ultimately, what Bob's doing is working. He's buying survivor stock. He's rearing his survivor stock he's obtaining survivor stock and high quality queens now i don't think and i've said this over and over again that this queen thing is the panacea unless you're in a yard where you're controlling the entire ecosystem of your area and you're raising bees and putting drones out and all that other stuff then they do a good job but they're not going to get you to the finish line all this to come back and say, well, I'm not the most agile person at trading, monitoring, and so on. You know, when we started doing this in the beginning, you would treat once a year. Then at some point, someone came in and said, you know, it'd be a good idea to treat in spring, knock the mites down from the beginning, and the bees would be healthier through, and you could treat in the fall, and now you're in the summer, and you're two treatments. Then there was the conversation about, well, you need to treat in the fall, too, so that they don't have mites going into winter. So nowadays, and this is not a stretch, it's commonplace to treat three times. And there are some beekeepers who are monitoring and treating monthly, from what I've seen and read and heard and talked to. I don't want to be on that treatment treadmill. I just don't want to do it. And given last year, my thought process that Apifar didn't do the job when the colonies were full size 
and I want to take synthetic miticides out of the program, maybe it's time again, all these factors are adding up math-wise to consider this idea. Now, is 2022 the year that I'm going treatment-free? Not exactly. <laughs> Although I will say, I have yet to do any treatments this year, and I don't have anything to treat my bees with. Uh, my plan in 2021 was to use all my stock up. It was all going to expire at the end of the year, and I used everything I had. If I'm going to buy treatment stuff, specifically Formic Pro would be one of the things I would go with. Um, one of multiple, because again, you need to rotate them out. Just saying that as a public service announcement. I, I'm going to have to order in. Another thing about having as many colonies as we have is it gets really expensive. And if you're going to lose half of them anyway, if that's what your lot in life is, then does that really make sense? Now, I've long since moved off the package thing. I've always been rearing bees from what's inside my apiary. And as you've heard, we're trying to make sure this is another element from the last couple of years that all of the co colonies are and because we're rearing queens i can afford to do this have fresh young vigorous queens which i think are also going to help the varroa piece of this so this is just me talking out loud hey how you doing what am i thinking i'm not i don't have a plan for this yet <laughs> at this point i'm just you know, every season I evaluate this, and this is the strongest pang I've had to going in that direction. One of the challenges that I have is I don't want to be hypocritical. I've lamented uh, about some of my neighbors who don't opt not to treat, and I think they're contributing to the Varroa problem. But this is the gist. If you're bringing in stock that's supposed to be survivor and, and has good genetics, Maybe it's time to test to see whether they can stand the test of time in this location. And if they can, we should all go this direction. In fact, and I'll say it on the record, we should have done this from the beginning. We should have taken it on the chin in the beginning, let the hives deal and sort it out. Now, whether or not that would have been cataclysmic, I can't tell. And it's not worth the energy to speculate that. So, just thinking about it, what will I do? I guess Tom will tell, especially if I start to see, you know, one of the things that I've seen in the past is parasitic mite syndrome and or European fowl brood with high mite loads. If I see that stuff going on in my apiary, obviously I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to take care of it. And it's almost always tied back to pressures and stress from varroa mites. So that's actually an interesting, an interesting barometer. Will that stuff come back? Don't know. If you've gone this route, whether you're at the beginning of the journey, you're thinking about it, or you've done it already and switched over, and yeah, you're taking some losses, but you're managing, I'm curious to hear from you. Kevin at bkcorner.org. Just want to know what you're doing. And again, for everybody listening, I am going to reiterate that this is 
The one thing that affords us the ability to do this is the number of splits and colonies and queen rearing. All that in combination makes this an option. If you're a two hive in the backyard beekeeper, don't think you should be thinking about this because it's very easy for both of them to implode. In fact, I know so many beekeepers, they're not great at their treatment regimes and they end up failing because of it. Oh, they didn't treat till September. Why did my hives die? Well, you treated in September, your hives were overloaded with mites. But the gist is if you have 22 hives and 12 of them make it through in the springtime, you can get back to 22 really quickly. But if you have two hives and they both die, you're toast and you're buying packages. I feel like I'm bludgeoning the topic at this point, so I'm just going to close it down. But I have to say it out loud. And if someday you hear me say, well, I'm a treatment-free beekeeper, you shouldn't be surprised at how I got here. This is laying the foundation, and quite frankly, it's something I've wanted to do all the time. You've heard me talk about treatment-free on the program, and I still think one of the major arguments against it in New Jersey is just a pure saturation of hives and, I don't know, I, I don't believe in magic colonies that can deal with the varroa mites from other sources completely around you. If I take a parallel example, no, I'm not going to talk about the dogwood mange. I'm going to talk about hive beetles. People who have true hive beetles could say, you know what, just let the bees deal with them. But they won't. <laughs> hive beetles are going to overcome the colony and they're going to destroy them. You have to proactively manage against hive beetles. It's the same kind of idea. If you're constantly bombarded with varroa mites in the environment, the biggest thing that I could do that would really make the difference is move to a 100-acre farm and put bees out mile apart. <laughs> you know, that whole spread them out thing. Not have 12 hives sitting within a 20 by 20 foot patch. I could start distributing hives all around my property. I wonder what my neighbors would think. They'd probably think I'm nuts. Just saying that out loud, uh, that would be the last thing that I think between survivor stock rearing queens and, and other measures, uh, spreading the colonies out would probably make a, a good recipe. What's on your mind? Well, that's what's going around mine. I'll talk to you soon about this uh, as it progresses through the year and I have to make some decisions. The bottom of the pile has been found. Let's turn to the local hive report. At the current moment, I have 17 hive setups in play. I wish to temper that by saying I do not have 17 hives making honey. Actually, there's technically more than 17 colonies in play, but as I expand, you'll get a sense of it's a bit of a misnomer. I had to restate this as colonies that will make honey crop. There are nine or ten that have that trajectory. The rest are kind of works in progress. The yard is a mix of six frame poly boxes that have been set up as queen castles. At current count, I have five of them going, and all of them have three frames of bees on each side and a freshly capped queen cell from our 2020 grafting work to rear queens this season. Tis the week. Let's hope that these queens can find the sunny weather, go out and 
mate with their drones and come back and make productive colonies for us. I sourced bees for these nukes from splitting up some of the colonies and or sourcing some bees from a captured swarm that did not successfully mate the queen in their box along the way. I'm hopeful that the work done to rear the queens will pay off the season given the tent cells installed are going out to make at the peak of the season unlike last year. But alas, I'm concerned that many of them will not make it back and I can explain. The friggin' catbirds are back this spring and they're stalking the apiary non-stop. On our morning walk, I mentioned these concerns to Sharon and she suggested that we might consider an owl statue to scare away the birds. I'm going to go on a bit of a sidebar here for a second, but yeah, I'll admit I ordered one. Do I think it's going to work? No. Technically no, but maybe there's a chance. Let me explain. If you think that, you take one of these things and put it somewhere, and it is there day after day, moment after moment. You fool nothing. Birds, squirrels, they see it the same way they see a concrete bunny in the you know lawn ornament in the yard or something. However, and this is a bit of a but on my part, if you're able to take the time to move the owl around, I have to wonder if it would be more effective. On top of that, something that is static with zero movement is a statue, and even if it has lifelike paint and menacing eyes, it's still a statue. So I purchased one. And it has this swiveling head that moves with the wind. Or at least I hope there'll be enough wind to make it work. Yeah, I'm a sucker. Yeah. But the way I think of it is, I'm in a bee yard just about every day. If not every few days. I'm going to leave it stationary for a day. And then I'm going to figure out a way to move it here and there and there. In the woods all around the apiary. In some way... I'm hoping to keep the birds out of the apiary and prevent them from picking off my virgin queens going out to mate. And I'll have a little minor bit of satisfaction. Am I thinking it's going to work? Well, not really. But doing something is better than nothing. I honestly had a moment sitting out there the other day. I have some chairs in the back of the apiary. Thinking about getting a pellet gun out as I watched the catbirds thumb their noses at me and flitter in and out amongst the bees picking them off. It was really demoralizing. They walked within a foot and a half of my feet sitting on the ground and just looked up at me like, what are you doing here? At least I'll have a bit of a garden gnome kind of moment when I walk around each day placing the owl statue in its new place. And I figure eventually that the version I bought with its moving head and such is kind of cool in its own right. And I presume that if it's not going to be effective, I'll just put it out with the swirly thingies in the garden as a long ornament for the squirrels to play on. In all seriousness, if I find that my queens won't get mated in the yard because the birds are eating them yet again... I'll look to employ a different tactic next year. I'm thinking about all the queen meeting activities will have to move to an out yard, someplace in a field that doesn't harbor the hungry birds behind every bush, but I digress. Coming back to colonies in play, a full-size hive have honey supers on them. I have three, or is it four, or five, six-frame nukes that are fledgling colonies in the making. Just wondering how many swarm calls we're going to get this week now that the weather has finally broke. 
I just captured a swarm yesterday, my first one from the public this year, and placed it in a five-frame nuke on pad number 12. The swarm was resting on a foundation wall at a home along Route 202 in Ringo's, and the homeowner said it emerged two days earlier from the colony. That is living inside of his house. <laughs> yeah. They've been the bees in his house, and his comment was, well, as long as they've been there, and it's been a while, they're not really going to be a problem, and I'm okay with it. He did mention that every once in a while, some bees somehow find their way into the house, but it hasn't been that much of a problem. So, I scraped the bees off the concrete foundation wall into a box, probably one of the easier swarms to capture. You know, the day that I went, which was Saturday, it was in the 40s, the wind was blowing, it was cold and raw and damp, and it poured rain the whole time I was there. And I'm betting those girls are happy to be placed in a warm, dry box with drawn comb. I could hear the many cheers as they were dumped in. I used a spackle knife and a dustpan to dislodge them. That's all I needed, and it worked like a charm. I had a bee vac in the car. It could have vacuumed them off, but they were so cold that they were clustered tight to each other like they would be for winter. And it was somewhat easy to parse them off in clumps and dump them into the prepared nuke that I brought with me. I like swarm collections like that. Easy peasy. I placed the closed up nuke in the back of my car and said thanks to the homeowner with a bottle of honey. His face lit up like I gave him a puppy. <laughs> and the last I saw of him, he was heading back to the house with a content smile clutching the jar to his chest in a nice little hug. So in the yard, that box and several others are nukes for now, and I'm going to spend some time in the spring curating them to full-size colonies, and I think in the end I'll migrate some of them to the outyards for honey production, much like the one I placed at Valley Crest last year. So as inferred, it's been an unusually cold and damp spring, and we're almost to mid-May. I suspect what lies ahead is an explosion in bee growth. Finally, and this time I think it really is finally, we're going to see highs in the 70s all week and get to the lows of 50s and even 60s at night. I can't recall a year where it's been this cold this long into the spring years for years and years and years. And t-shirt weather is right around the corner. I think that's mostly what I want to share this go around, but there is one thing to mention. I have yet to touch upon my lands hive. I think this is the week to see what's going on with it. I suspect, given what I see at the front entrance, that it's moderate in size. I have a plan for this hive, and it has to do with comb honey production. Given how prolific it is in drawing out long, contiguous, foundation-free honeycomb, my plan is to place foundationless frames toward the latter side of the box. The nest side of the box is the left side when looking at the front, and they always come and go using the left entrance, even though they have a right and left one. And we'll see if they will do what they did last year, which is to draw floor to ceiling honeycomb capped with bright white wax, early in the season over on the right side of the box looking at the front. Tis the season for this and I'm ready to see what this colony is to do. Last year we harvested several of these frames and made cut comb honey from them 
And here and there, people ask us for them. And given this hive's capabilities, we've been able to supply that. It's kind of a cool utility. And, you know, if you get two or three of those frames, it makes an awful lot of cut comb honey. With the weather finally turning for the good, things are starting to get interesting. The height of the season is upon us, and we must not squander the opportunity. Local hive report check. Uh, for closing comments, I guess the thing that I'll say is I got to get to work. It's that time. I got to sign off and go to my first morning stand-up call, so I'll leave it at that. We have a weekly beekeeping meeting coming up, I think, this weekend. Coming up for Northwest New Jersey, we'll be in the field at Valley Crest working with all the folks doing, you know, normal spring activities. I think I'm on the hook for splits and swarm captures and some other topics per se. I don't know. We'll kind of go by the flow. They have an agenda. I'm just not plugged into it as well as I should be, but I'm sure by Saturday we'll get it all prepared. Um, no more knocks on the head for me. It's been a good season so far. Uh, you know, this working from home slash working from the office part-time COVID thing has been most beneficial there's been no conversation of moving back to a full-time posture. I'm hoping that this uh, couple-day-a-week thing is going to stick. I really am enjoying working from home. Actually, it affords me the ability to do this instead of driving into the office this morning. So there is that. Uh, uh, yeah, no rest for the weary. The, the bad news is my truck has been parked outside my vehicle. For days, because I have that thing going on in the garage where I have boxes sorted out and cleaning all the frames and restacking things. And uh, that's that's the crappy part of not having a bee house or something to do that stuff in. I am one of those people that will read my lips, have my car in the garage. So it's been a little bit, but this weekend everything will get ship shape. All the boxes get restacked in there. What I've been working on is prepping honey boxes, uh, making sure that I have all my medium supers ready to go with the drawn comb and any that don't have drawn comb, uh, making sure that frames are built so I can slap in foundation what I need. And I'm in pretty good shape there. So, as you might imagine, busy, 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 no rest for the weary this time of year. That's enough. I really do need to get to work. Thanks for checking in. We'll see you next time. And like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Take care, everybody.